What exactly does DJ Uyunglele bring to Oregon State that they didn't have this year? Plus, some amazing mailbag questions. Let's go. Our Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pack 12. I am your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with our beloved Conference of Champions. Please continue to like, comment, subscribe wherever you listen to or watch this show. I so much appreciate all of you out there who have done so already. I, I do want to say off the top, I am recording this uh, about two hours after the Damar Hamlin situation. I think everything that you think, hoping the guy is okay. That's that's all I can really do. And the only thing I can do now is to give you some sports escape from that horrifying situation. So I hope I can do that. I'm going to try to do that here today. And a question came in, three of them actually, to drive today's show, which I absolutely enjoy. I love when you send me questions. And boy, you guys really upped the ante on great questions in this one. Uh, Bill Magorian asks, I've only listened to half your show. Well, interesting. Um, What hasn't come come up yet is my question. What does DJ bring that will create another offensive dimension to the OSU offense? Details, please. So this is a very good, though perhaps not amazingly worded question, but the, uh, the, the theory that he's going for here is what exactly does Oregon State have in DJU at at quarterback? And I'm going to continue to refer to him as DJU because it's a little bit easier than saying Uyunglele, and I don't even know if I'm getting that right. Hope I am. So what DJU brings to Oregon State more than anything is arm talent. I don't think it's his experience. I don't think it's his moxie. I don't think it's, you know, his confidence level probably has to be a little iffy at best. I don't think that's what he's bringing primarily to the table. He can have all those things. He could do them well and excel at Oregon State because Jonathan Smith is a really good coach. They've set up a really, really quarterback-friendly offense there in in Corvallis. But what DJU brings is the ability, kind of what we saw from the Oregon State offense early in the season. When Chance Nolan was healthy and Oregon State started 3-0, beating the two teams who ultimately played in the Mountain West Championship. You know, initially, those looked like, ah, just so-so wins. Then the year went on, you're like, okay, those are still pretty darn good wins. And and then Fresno State ended the year by beating Washington State soundly. I was about to combine handily and soundly in the Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl, but I digress. What Oregon State had in that game that they didn't have at the end of the year but were able to kind of skate by with, with, with doing sorry, I'm all over the place right now, was was the ability to stretch the field. The ability to stretch the field because you have a quarterback who can physically make those throws. And DJU was a five-star quarterback coming out of high school. And primarily, star gradings are a function of your physical traits and how you are able to use them. And there is not a throw on the field that DJU cannot make. 
there are throws on the field that Ben Golbranson cannot make. Golbranson doesn't have a bad arm, and Golbranson is not a bad quarterback, clearly. He went like, what, 7-1, and 6-1 and one as a starter this year after Chance Nolan got hurt? He did a really good job. He wasn't asked to do very much, and that's the other dimension that DJU can bring. I don't think he'll be asked to do it often, but say you're going up against a really stout run defense, like Utah, for example who unfortunately fell in the Rose Bowl yesterday. More on that coming on tomorrow's show. If you're going up against a team like Utah and they've got a stout run defense and you're averaging two and a half to three yards a carry, you have to have a next gear. You have to have a next dimension if you are an offense, if you're going to win at a high level. And Oregon State was able to get away with it this year, but... It felt like their offense was being carried at times by their defense, which set them up in advantageous situations, and they ran the ball very well. They will continue to run the ball very well. But if you had taken away that running game, or at least limited it, that Oregon State offense with Ben Golbranson there didn't have a next gear, didn't have an off-speed pitch, right? They basically had a 100-mile-per-hour fastball, but they didn't have a slider. Now with DJU, they have the slider. That off-speed isn't going to be their best pitch, It's still going to be the heater, but having it there as a more reliable threat for a defensive coordinator to deal with is a huge thing for the Oregon State offense. I'm curious what what Brian Lindgren and Jonathan Smith want to do with DJ at quarterback and you know, will the offense look different at all? Will they want to introduce quarterback runs, which isn't something they've really ever done other than bringing in uh, the jackhammer and the wildcat package, Jack Coletto? Maybe they do that. Maybe they have some shotgun RPOs. I could see that introducing as a part of their offense. Gold Branson, I don't think, had you know quite the, the arm talent or the quick release that DJU does to be able to make some of those RPO plays because you've got to be able to fit the ball in a tight window, pull it out of a running back stomach really quickly, and really zip it into a narrow space. He can do that. And so they might add a couple wrinkles here and there, but the biggest thing is and I got a little sidetracked from this earlier, when, when Nolan was healthy and they won those first three games, they were taking shots down the field. They, they were taking and hitting shots down the field. When Golbranson was in there, that was lost. And Chance Nolan went in the transfer portal. They bring in DJU. I don't have any doubts that he will be the starter, but that's what it will more closely resemble offensively for Oregon State. He's not a guy who's going to come in because we saw Clemson try this, and this is against Oregon State's philosophy anyway, and suddenly have the offense run through him. He's he's going to serve as a complimentary quarterback, as Ben Golbranson did this year. But he has more arm talent, he has more skill, and therefore more potential to open up the playbook a little bit and try and hit a deep comeback throw, a deep post, a go route, right? Those sorts of those sorts of throws and plays that require someone that just has that next gear and level of potential. And it's such a great mix because DJ had to have the offense run through him, right? Kate Klubnick is learning that at Clemson right now and will next year. We saw with Trevor Lawrence, Deshaun Watson, Dabo runs a very quarterback-centric offense. And DJU can't handle that and execute it at a high level consistently. He did in spurts, by the way. For those of you who think he's absolutely terrible, that is not true. He was inconsistent, yes, 
when he was asked asked to be the focal point of the offense. He will not be asked to do that. I do not see Lindgren and Jonathan Smith abandoning their identity for what worked so well for them offensively this year. I think they want to bring him in to add that new dimension, return the vertical passing game, stretch the defense out, and be just a little bit more balanced. Because the fact that they beat Oregon in that game, formerly known as the Civil War, by only completing six passes is kind of a miracle and in a ridiculous, Ridiculous coaching job. I mean, you have to be so well coached in the run game. A lot of things had to go right. They dominated on special teams, and they did go right. And the Beavs deserve a lot of credit for that. And it was also kind of a coaching calamity for Tan Lanning and the Ducks, right? Like, that is a really, really bad look, especially for a defensively oriented head coach. But Oregon State was able to execute there, but they don't want to have to do that. And I will tell you why after I tell you about LinkedIn Jobs. As a small business owner, as a small business owner or hiring manager, I tell you, English is hard. You know that success in 2023 all depends on the team members you surround yourself with. That's that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. With LinkedIn Jobs, you can hire qualified candidates more efficiently by matching open roles with people who have the skills, values, and experiences to help you achieve your goals. LinkedIn Jobs helps you quickly attract qualified candidates to your open jobs with targeting tools. They help you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash college. That's linkedin.com slash college to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So o- Oregon State does not want to change their offensive philosophy because they, they know what works. They, they know that it does work what they do, but they just need to be able to be a little bit more versatile because looking at that amazing coaching job they did against Oregon, where they completed six passes and won the game, putting up 37, 38 points, whatever it was, uh, 38, yeah, I don't know. I think it was 38, 34 final. That, that is something that is amazing. They deserve a lot of credit for, but that's not repeatable. That, that's not a formula for winning 11 to 12 games in a season, which after crossing the 10-win threshold is what Oregon State is now going to attempt to do under this coaching staff. They want to take that next step. And you bring in a guy like DJU because you know completing six passes in a game is not going to... You don't have to throw it 50 to 55 times a game, but a couple times a year, you may need to rely on your quarterback more than you did this season. But most importantly, in a regular game or week in and week out, this is not an Oregon State team that is built to be able to, nor wants to, nor should they want to, have their quarterback just carry them game after game after game. Because go look at the best teams in college football. Even think about Wisconsin, for instance. They had a 12-0 and season. And they were on the cusp of going to the playoff. Ohio State beat them in the Big Ten championship game. And they they went to the Rose Bowl instead. I, th- I, don't, I don't remember exactly. But anyway, there was a 12-0 Wisconsin team. Wisconsin is known as a team that wants to run the football very heavily. And this is not the last time I will compare Oregon State to Wisconsin. They are not completing six passes in a game. They want to be able to consistently complete probably 20 to 25. Whereas with Ben Goldbranson, it felt like, a standard day 
was kind of more in the 13 to 15 range. And you got to be able to do more. And you got to be able to stretch the field as well. You don't have to shift to a complete and total air raid here, but you do have to have that extra dimension. I, I think what I said earlier is the best way to sum it up. Oregon State's running game, 100-mile-an-hour fastball with Damian Martinez. You got to have a slider. It doesn't have to be a great slider, but you have to be able to just present that to hitters or they will eventually be able to sit on the fastball. Even if some hitters can't, like Oregon this year, some hitters are going to be able to adjust and will eventually sit back and rip it. You got to have that off-speed pitch. So that's what DJU brings more than anything. Next one. And I like this one too. From David Harper. Like I said, the mailbag questions, outstanding. Again, at LO underscore Pac-12 or Smalls underscore 55 are the Twitter handles, YouTube comments. I'm always active in there with all of you. David Harper asks, Spence, hypothetical question. Do you think if the dogs would have won the ASU game that we could have beat or that we would have beat USC? And then if we did beat them, do you think we would could have made the CFP? It's it's a great question. It is I'm not usually big on hypotheticals, but they are kind of fun to understand just how close a team came, which can be really important because sometimes I think fans have a tendency to just look at the end results and say, ah, well, it was this, you know, like Oregon fans are very much in this mindset. Like, ah, it was 10 and three. It was a disappointing 10 and three. Like, yeah, but last year mm, it was a lot further off than it was this year. It was a couple of really close games against really good football teams. Last year you played a really good team and you got housed twice in three weeks that's different so if Washington had beaten Arizona State they get to the Pac-12 championship game if they'd beaten USC yeah they're absolutely in the playoff a one loss power five champion is almost always in the playoff and it, it would have been an epic game too because you would have had Washington against USC probably playing for a playoff spot like Ohio State would not have had a conference championship Oh, that would have been amazing. That would that would that would have been one heck of a stage. Year one head coaches with two teams that were four and eight the year before. Man, Pac-12 missed an opportunity there because Washington lost to Arizona State. But the other part of his question: Do you think we, that being Washington, would have beaten USC? I think it is really easy right now after USC blew it in the Cotton Bowl to to Tulane out of the American Conference, which like props to the Green Wave, but also USC. What the heck just happened? I tell you what, Alex Grinch. Anyway, uh, that that's thoughts will come on that for for a later day, but I think USC needs to make a change there. So it's easy to look at that and say, oh well, Tulane out of the American, they beat USC. Washington 110 percent beats USC. Well. Do I think Washington could have beaten USC? Absolutely. They would have scored a lot of points. Here's what else I know. USC would have scored a lot of points on them. Because the secondary was depleted at times, and even when they were there, they were not as good as Washington secondary has been in the last several years. It was a major step down this year. And the Washington's defense, I really like their front four. I talked about that going into the Alamo Bowl. Part of the reason that I picked them to win that game, which they did, and looked quite good uh, doing it. Even though like, Penix got off to a terrible start in that game, and then Washington still won because they were just a better team than Texas overall. Tried to make you some money there. Haven't done it many times this year, let me tell you. But I did like the Huskies quite a bit in, in that game. So it's easy to look at how those games played out and say, well, this certainly would have happened. 
here's here's a hypothetical for you. Well, not hypothetical. This is more just food for thought on that front. I think the game would have been a high-scoring shootout, much like the first game with Utah, much like the Cotton Bowl was. Honestly, I think it's a toss-up because USC probably goes into that game favored. I, I think they almost certainly would have, would have gone into that game as as the favorite according to Vegas. Does not automatically mean they would have won. I don't think they would have been favored by more than a touchdown at the most. I mean, they're, they're probably favored if Texas was favored in the state of Texas by three to four, USC is probably favored by five, maybe six. It's, it's probably closer to five in that game. Could, could Washington have beaten them? hundred percent. Could USC have beaten Washington? Also? Yes. And if you don't agree with that, here's what I would remind you. Every game in college football is so different than the one the team played last week or this matchup over here, right? Because if you just look at stuff on paper and say, well, this is how that matchup would go, that's why we play the games. UCLA was a 20-point favorite against Arizona. They lost. Washington was a two-touchdown road favorite against Arizona State. They lost. Like, not every game goes the way you expect it to. And, And you could play all this you know, transitive property, this team beat this team. But even if you do that, you can't arrive at a distinct conclusion and say Washington would have beaten USC. Well, you know, Utah wasn't actually that good. Look at how they played in the Rose Bowl. Well, I watched Utah beat USC twice. So was USC not any good? But I also watched Utah lose to UCLA. I also watched Utah lose to Oregon. I also watched UCLA beat Washington. So if UCLA is like the fifth best team in the conference when Washington lost to them too and Arizona's, you see how this this circular game, you can just talk yourself into madness? Here are my thoughts on that particular game. It is a toss-up. I think it's a toss-up. I think it's a close point spread. Either side could win. Could Washington win? Yeah, absolutely. But shootouts are as much a toss-ups as any style of game in college football. It's not a Washington-Utah hypothetical where you say these are two contrasting styles. Washington's all about the passing game. Utah's more about the ground game and physical defense. And the Huskies are just going to try and outscore you. Well, that's what USC was trying to do as well. So you would have had two teams going up against each other with very similar styles. And I, I understand how you can look at that Washington game and say, you know, how, how it played out against Texas, how they ended the year and say, well, yeah, they certainly would have beaten USC. You, you you don't know. You just don't know. Because based on how everything played out, you, you can say this team would beat that team or that team would beat this team. I mean, USC beat UCLA and UCLA beat Utah. Well, doesn't that mean that USC, after losing close to Utah in Salt Lake City, certainly they're going to beat them in the Pac-12 championship game? Nope. Not so much. Utes are the two-time defending champs. But could Washington have won? Yeah. And would they have been in the playoff? Yeah. And that would have been a heck of a story. Still a heck of a year one for, for Kalen DeBoer up there in Seattle. All right. One more fantastic question. This is from a little while back, and I apologize for not getting to it sooner. There are bowl games, you know, but anytime you send me a question, I will always get to it here on the show. Always, always, always. I've never once been sent a question and not answered it. I really enjoy it. I, I truly do. Jonathan Hansen, these all came in via the YouTube comments, by the way. Great way to reach me. 
Who do you think will be king of the Pac-12 once the Callies leave? I'm willing to bet it'll be Utah, Washington, or Oregon, or two of the three. Hashtag, go Utes. Well, Washington, at least for 2023, appears to be in a really good situation. But it's actually kind of hard to project this question because all the teams you listed in there, right? That's, that's the easy answer. The easy answer is to say, well, Washington was 11-2 and this year. Oregon was 10-3. and Utah was 10-4 and and won the conference for the second straight year. It's definitely going to be those three. He's asking once the LA schools leave, so going into 2024, who's primed to take over the pack? The answer is anyone could hypothetically rise up. I, I do like Oregon and Washington's chances, but if I asked you right now, who's playing quarterback for Washington and Oregon opening day 2024? Yeah, it's a fun question, isn't it? Because you don't know the answer, and I don't know the answer. And that determines a lot of things. That determines most of the things. Washington is a conference contender going into 2023 because they will bring back a lot of players from this team. Most importantly, Michael Penix, a quarterback. And Oregon is in that mix going into 2023 because they bring back a decent number of players. They're doing very well in the recruiting and transfer portal sense. But perhaps most importantly, they're bringing back Bo Nix. And we saw what he was capable of this year. When that question starts to come up, who's going to play quarterback, what are you going to get there? The potential for, you can call it a rebuilding year, a pullback year, a middling year, label it whatever you want. It's very, very real, which going into 2023, I think it's going to be the most interesting year in the Pac-12 ever, which is ironic because it's kind of the last year of the Pac-12 as we know it, but it's going to be truly epic. Last year for USC and UCLA, Utah is still going to be there as the two-time defending champs. Oregon and Washington bring their quarterbacks back. You you know that Arizona is primed to pull another upset. Do they take another leap forward? Heck, you never know. What are the new coaches at ASU and Stanford going to be able to do? What is Coach Prime going to do at Colorado? Tons of storylines. Tons of storylines. And I feel very lucky to be able to host this show going into that year because, man, let me tell you, it's going, to be a, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, th- that is the most honest way I can answer the question, though. Because, Jonathan, I totally hear you, right? Utah, Washington, Oregon. Yep. Feel, feels like those are the three programs from a pedigree, a coaching, and recruiting standpoint to be able to continue to be at the top. But a void is then created. And look at what Oregon State did this year. I didn't even mention them. And they just won 10 games in this conference. And they're not as quarterback dependent, right? And I think Washington was more quarterback dependent than Oregon this year. But if Washington finds a guy, or maybe Sam Heward becomes the guy who can execute that Kalen DeBoer, Ryan Grubb offense at a high level as Penix did this year and probably will again next year, then the Huskies look like they're in a really great spot. If Oregon turns it around on the defensive side of the ball, they could be in a really great spot. I trust Kyle Whittingham exclusively. They could be in a good position. Oregon State looks like they're a good program now. We'll see how they follow up this 10-win year, but it's a fascinating question, and, and I don't have a definitive answer because of that, that question I said, or I, I asked earlier. 
who's playing quarterback for Oregon and Washington, or Utah for that matter, but for Utah and Oregon State, it's kind of less important, but for Oregon and Washington, it's much more important because uh, they, they have a stronger presence in the vertical passing game. You have to answer that question before you can answer your question. Totally, but I think it's interesting nonetheless. Keep the questions coming, everybody. I appreciate your support so much. I love the questions. Again, Twitter, YouTube comments, wherever you can reach me all the time. I appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time and have a wonderful rest of your day.